Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. My name is Matthew Stewart. I am the president and founder of Stewart Speakers, a not-for-profit lecture series organization that brings prominent thought leaders to the Indianapolis community to educate, inspire, and invoke meaningful conversations. For over 30 years, Stewart Speakers has been dedicated to enhancing the community by providing opportunities to engage with America's best leaders and brightest luminaries. These leaders support our mission of more than just talk and allow us to live out the three pillars, education, engagement, and experience. Today, I would like to focus on engagement. Through engagement, our speakers began conversation, but steward speakers helps to keep the conversations going. Like you, we are coping with the virus that is sweeping our nation. To help us keep the conversation going, our goal tonight is to focus on how we can stay mentally fit and positive 
during this time of the coronavirus. I want to give a special shout out to our panelists tonight and also to you who are joining us for this conversation. And now, Roland Martin. All right, folks, uh, you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Of course, we normally do this uh, every day on Facebook, Periscope, and uh, YouTube as well. But we also, uh, for the first time, are live streaming this special on Instagram uh, Live. And so we want to thank all the people who are watching us on Instagram. want to make sure that uh, if y'all got, make sure you let, uh, I got somebody who's saying there's no sound. Uh, that, that has to be uh, your phone because I, I can hear the sound as well. All right, folks, uh, our, the whole point of this next hour is to have really a conversation that talks with uh, some of our leaders about, again, how we are dealing with uh, COVID-19 uh, mentally. Uh, we've had cases of folks uh, who have actually been struggling with this, committing suicide. We, we talked about, of course, on my show, folks having to confront uh, child abuse and domestic abuse and how people uh, are really struggling with not being at work, uh, folks not having jobs, uh, you know, and all these different things. And so that's really what our discussion is about. I want to bring, introduce our panel. Joining us right now is Congressman Andre Carson, of course, who represents a uh, district there in uh, Indiana. Also, uh, Reverend Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, who joins us as well uh, on here. Folks, let me know if we have Susan Taylor. Of course, we have Susan Taylor. Of course, she, of course, uh, is um, Ettery Emeritus, uh, Essence Magazine, leader, founder of National Cares Mentoring Project. Glad to have all three of you here. And so before we get into, you know, explaining what everybody else uh, needs to do, uh, I, I want to start with you, Susan. H how have you um, dealt with this moment? I've seen some of your tweets and posts uh, where you've talked about uh, just uh, how to get yourself jump-started uh, in terms of, you know, d b being at home and not having your regular flow in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic. You know, I think this is the first time since I gave birth 50 years ago that I've been home for more than maybe four days. I am enjoying the quiet. I'm enjoying the peace. I do want to be able to do more reading and to finish, like, you know, the 50 books that I started and never, <laughs> you know, got through. But I'm working hard because the community that I serve, you know, children and parents who are in poverty, they're being hit hard. So it's really calling upon me and our teams to really raise money to make sure that we move our content onto virtual platforms so we can keep our healing work going. But I'm doing fine. I'm calling on the things that I've written and what I know. And it's time to practice. So I'm practicing wellness. Uh, Congressman Carson, uh, the House is not going to be back in session until May. Uh, I've had other members on. They said that they are on endless conference calls, dealing with leadership, still trying to get work done. And so how have you, uh, how are you operating in this new world? All right. Uh, look, it looks like we have issues with Congressman Carson's Skype, so we're going to come back to him. Michael Eric Dyson, uh, how are you dealing with this? Uh, you, like, just like myself, we often are busy on the road speaking and traveling. Um, not on planes these days. <laughs> no doubt about it, Brother Martin. And first of all, I want to thank you for, you know, being such a conscientious uh, witness for so much of the things that happen in our community that are 
marginalized or altogether um, avoided and sometimes even just plain out ignored. You know, I watch you every day and your, you know, commentary alongside of experts, medical professionals and biological professionals who otherwise uh, would not get the light of day uh, of high excellence and high pedigree appearing routinely on your show is a real service to this nation. I appreciate it, um, appreciate it. Absolutely, uh, along with your always extraordinary insight and commentary. Look, man, I'm having a great time in the sense of, like you, Roland, ain't got to go on the road. Uh, you know, I'm writing a couple books right now, so that helps that I can get up every day and focus on that. But I have a privilege that so many others among us don't. You know that only 20% of black people uh, really have the possibility of staying home and doing their work where the masses of African-American people are out there in the streets forced to still go to work even when they don't feel well, even when they know that they are risking their lives. And so it's an extraordinary opportunity that I have and enjoy, and I'm conscious of that privilege and opportunity and trying to maximize that, trying to write stuff that will ultimately uh, enable our people to have a better understanding of what we're going through, but also for those who look at us, who judge us, who scrutinize us, to have a more humane and compassionate, um, you know, reflection on who we are as a people. Congressman Carson, looks like we have you back. Yeah, my apologies. It's all that, good. That's a bad signal. We're uh, back. It's all good. Uh, and so, look, are you a member of Congress? Uh, Congress is not going to be re House won't, won't be reconvening, according to Steny Hall, year uh, before May fourth. And so, uh, this, how are you operating now in this new world uh, of the uh, COVID nineteen pandemic? Well, we're operating quite differently. Of course, our office is closed. We've been we we've been in the midst of six or seven or eight video conference calls a day. We still meet as a staff. We're still meeting and engaging with constituents. Um, I even volunteered uh, to be a part of some food banks. But I'm also trying to stay healthy, Roland. You know, as, as Dr. Dyson and uh, Madam Taylor mentioned, you know, that, that mental health is, is so important. You know, I, I, I struggle with, with hypertension myself. And I think during these times, um, we really have to look at removing... Um, kind of the stigma associated with mental health. Um, my mother suffered from schizophrenia, as educated as she was, as brilliant as she was, uh, so much so that uh, we spent time in a homeless shelter as a very young man, and my grandmother ended up having to raise me. And I know that these kinds of times create stressors. And I think it's important for people to see elected officials who get elected into office, and oftentimes, Roland, as you know, uh, many elected officials go to churches, they go to mosques, they go to synagogues, and they petition people to vote for them, but once they get into office, they vote against the people's interest. And so now is the time where the rubber meets the, the road, and it's time for people to see what their elected officials are doing on their behalf. So we're trying to keep our mental health up. I'm trying to keep mine up, keep my blood pressure down. But it's 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 been a blessing, and as Dr. Dyson stated, we're amongst the privileged who can still work from home. But I'm able to take this time to kind of read, reflect, spend some time with my daughter and family and uh, try to do the work of the people, brother. Susan, that really is the issue when you talk about uh, the fact, as Michael alluded to, only 20% of African-Americans can work from home. 
And so all of a sudden now uh, people uh, are, are really concerned. This week the first, first checks are going out uh, from Congress, those $1,200 checks. Uh, folks are concerned about can they pay their bills? Will there be a job to even go back to? We're seeing restaurants and airlines and all these different people uh, who are uh, laying folks off. And so for African Americans, when you talk about uh, the old adage, when America gets a cold, uh, we get the flu, America now gets coronavirus, we're dying. And even if people are not physically dying, uh, the stress of not knowing what's going to happen and how it's impacting them economically uh, can really weigh down on any man or any woman that it impacts their children and their loved ones and the extended family. I mean, it's so true. And, you know, it's a, a need to call up faith because we have to remember that this this is devastating, but it's not... I know I, I need to get the light out of the way, but you see, I'm the oldest one on here, so I'm not trying to show you all all of my stuff. Is this okay? <laughs> you're fine. My, you're fine. Don't worry my about son it. Is telling me to move. No, nah, don't worry and, about it. You're fine. You're fine. Okay. You know, this is a this is a moment when we really are getting to know ourselves. We're getting to know the things that 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 stress us. We're getting to know the things that we are addicted to or we believe we have to have. What I see is that people are purging, you know, they're, they're refining relationships. They're, they're, they're making up with people who they've been angry at for some time. That we're getting to know ourselves in ways that we don't in the everyday because typically, you know, our, our bodies are in one place and our minds are far down the road. And I just want to really just say thank you to the congressman for that kind of transparency because people really don't talk about the mental um, health issues in their families or even the crises that they've had themselves. And to hear you be so honest about that, it's freeing for other people to be able to know that they're not on this ledge alone. For me, I'm a student of history. I try to know everything that I can about us as a people and what we've been through. And when I look at our history and see what our ancestors suffered through, I said, this is not the rough side of the mountain. There are people three blocks from the luxury building I live in who have cups in their hands and they're on the streets. I don't know where they are now because I haven't been out there in a while. But that's really, that's devastating. And what this is showing us, too, is what we allow. For the first time, I would say, since the war on poverty, people are really talking about the disparities between black people and the larger society. And they're, but they're, what they're not talking about is the why. why. Why are we poor? Why are so many of us poor? It's the history that the nation won't own. And this is a time for us to really understand that we are, you know, each other's keepers, the great Gwendolyn Brooks, you know, wrote, that we are each other's keeper, we are each other's harvest, we are each other's magnitude and bond. And there should be no person in our community who is homeless and who is hungry. And the question is, rather than pointing the finger, are we looking in the mirror? and asking ourselves, what are we going to do about these crises that now the whole nation is suddenly becoming aware of? Why? Because we are really the people who are on the front line. We're the people who are moving 
you know, folks on those EMS trucks. We're the ones who are cleaning those hospitals. We're the ones who are moving bodies that, you know, have transitioned when people have transitioned. We're the frontline workers who have not been given the accord, and they don't have health insurance very often, and they're low-wage earners. This is really affecting the children we serve. Michael, when we talked, when, when Susan talked about what this is exposing, and, and I've been saying this every day, and we said it even really before this thing really began to show itself, that this coronavirus was going to truly expose every aspect of this country, not just the awful leadership from the White House, but it is exposing the major gaps in education. People are now seeing, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, you mean tell me how many kids depend on school for meals? How many, how many of these folks don't have Wi-Fi, don't have computers, don't have pads? Uh, now, all of a sudden, people are going, whoa, wait, how many people are in poverty? You, you, you're seeing these massive lines uh, of food banks in Pittsburgh and other places, and people are going, wait a minute, all these people are hungry? And so you can, we can just go down the line. So for Trump to constantly proclaim we're the biggest and the baddest and the richest and most prosperous nation on earth, it is showing the true haves and have-nots. Yeah, no doubt about it. And you have done an excellent job of pointing this out on a daily basis. Uh, aside from that malignant narcissist who is our, um, you know, chief executive officer of this nation, the reality is that the pandemic is endemic to black people. That, you know, across the board, we are suffering low-grade pandemics every day. Mm -hmm. The lack of access to food, the lack of access to high-quality food in food deserts, uh, high-sugar content <coughs> cereals posted up <coughs> in our ghetto neighborhood stores when we can find them, vast stretches where people have no access to food. Uh, no access to high-quality education. Uh, you know, we live with the sociologists called in concentrated poverty. Not only is a family poor, but the community is poor, the neighborhood is poor, the schools are poor, and the entire uh, larger network of associations that they have or don't have reflect their lack of access. They are essentially cut off. They have been socially distanced from economic inequality. They have been socially distanced as a result of the racial trauma that has been transmitted from one generation to the other. And as the great queen of black America, Susan Taylor, has indicated, we have not dealt with this. We've neglected to address this situation. And as a result of that, as what you said, Roland, when you look at the fact that if, if folk can't stay home, they got to go out there and work, we have already seen evidence that the police are highly insensitive to black people and through this pandemic as well. If they ain't got a mask, you got to get off the bus. If they go in with a mask into the store, they get kicked out because they look like criminals. What is, what is really at root of all of this is an anti-blackness that is deeply entrenched into American society. And as you say, this plague, this, in, this pandemic, is exposing the ways in which black people have been living uh, uh, far from the, the central operations of power, of economic ability, and of social stability and educational attainment in this country. So as a result of that, what we've got to do is figure out a way that after the pandemic is over, we don't forget about those who are lost. We forget about those grocery store people who bring us our food or those nurses who are on the front line 
are those people who continue to try to render service to us in the midst of this. If we don't forget them and we use this pandemic as a means to really rejigger the social relations of society, then we'll, we'll have done something. After the Black Plague, something big happened. After many of the earlier plagues and pandemics across the world, social relations sometimes got better, but sometimes they got worse. Look at the people who don't have access to unions. Look at the way in which non-union workers are forced uh, to work at high levels. Look at the way in which even Amazon has added 75,000 more jobs, but the people who are working there can't get PPE and other you know, resources to protect them. So unless we're willing to examine the structural issues that undergird our contemporary plague, this plague will have really not benefited us in the long run. Congressman Carson, we have you back uh, via FaceTime. Uh, I have... Do you get the sense that your colleagues on the other side really understand this moment and understand what this is exposing? The, you know, the Congress passes this $2 trillion package. Literally, the moment they passed it, folks were saying, not enough. The Federal Reserve comes back and says, we're going to inject $2.3 trillion into the economy and a significant amount is going to be for small businesses. The money, the $2 trillion bill, people say that wasn't enough for hospitals. It wasn't enough for universities. Um, and so do you, are they getting it? Are, are they actually seeing that, because every time we see an election, it's all the middle class, the middle class, the middle class. Are they now seeing that the people who not in the middle class are the ones who are cashiers at grocery stores who we need also stocking shelves? I mean, do you think they're getting it? One wonders, Roland. I mean, after all of the rhetoric and all of the fighting that they've done, now that this pandemic has gone to rule America at their very front doors, unfortunately, we're seeing some of their own relatives and loved ones impacted by this pandemic. We're seeing some of their, the folks that they grew up with, went to school with, impacted by this pandemic. And it's unfortunate that as much as they fought against the Democratic Party, as much as they fight to keep the Republic, if you will, we negotiated funding for SNAP, which benefits their own constituents. We negotiated over $130 billion to go to hospitals where immediate needs can be addressed. Guess what? It benefits their constituents. And so all of their rhetoric about uh, reining in our, 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 our deficit pulling back on excessive spending, it still impacts their constituents. If they want to quote scripture and talk about the Bible, then the Bible highlights the least of these. It seems to me that they're so fearful of a president who could tweet against them, and one tweet against them could jeopardize their reelection efforts. They refuse to be bold and speak out against a president who is not only a tyrant and a demagogue, he is, in fact, he wants to be a dictator. I say to the Republican Party, work with the Democrats because the very legislation that you speak against impacts your own constituents. And so in the CARES 2 Act, Roland, that we hope to uh, seal the deal on and negotiate, we want to talk about criminal justice reform. We want to talk about ways in which monies can get to the Bureau of Prisons and that money can get to state jails and state uh, 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 facilities where prisoners can flatten the curve as well, where prisoners are protected. We already have seen, especially in urban centers and in rural parts of our country, a deficit in PPE, personal protective gear. We want to make sure the money not only goes to the banks, because as, as you and I know, 
There are a lot of folks who are filling out W-9s or independent contractors. Can they get protected? Can, can, they, can they get the same kind of protection as some of these bigger businesses get? They're not getting the loans from the banks. And so there are alternative measures. We've been working with the fintech space, um, uh, PayPal and, and, and other uh, uh, platforms about ways in which smaller businesses can benefit from this. And when I say smaller businesses, I especially mean Black-owned and Black and Brown businesses of color. Uh, what this means, Roland, is that we have to press the Republican Party and those members of Congress and threaten them by leveraging our voting block against them. So when they want to run for office, we need to see what they've done to stand up against Donald Trump and his destructive agenda. Susan, when you, when you hear, first of all, and also to our panelists, you don't have to wait for me to call on you. You can jump in if you want to. That's not a problem. Uh, but Susan, when, you, when we look at what's happening, when we look at, you're really about dealing with children, but also with your parents' university as well. I mean, the toll that this is taking on real people, when you see these stories of suicide, when you see these stories uh, of folks just, I mean, these videos of, of people lashing out, you know, on with videos on Instagram or, or Twitter, that's people who are screaming out for help. And I, and I think the part of the problem in this country is that we have so severely cut back our mental health services that we have such a deficit, people have no idea where to even go. Well, you know, because there aren't places to go. Uh, because the mental health hospitals have been shut down. There was the promise of community mental health support that never arrived. But you know something? I'm not even looking outside of us at mm. them. I'm looking at us. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, we don't have an agenda. You know, Michael, you and I, Michael Dyson and I, in 2008, went to Denver. And Melanie Campbell said, if you come, I'm having a breakfast for leaders. And if you come, I'll give you 10 minutes to speak. And, that, and I said, you know, I don't have to be at the table. But what is the agenda? If you ask the average African-American, what is it that your leaders are asking of you? You know what? They were to vote. But beyond that, we can't articulate. What I want is a three or four, maybe five-point program. This is what we are asking of those who represent us. And we keep a report card, I think, as the congressman was saying, so that we understand where do you stand on uh, community development? Where do you stand on education? The disparity in education is the, is the very thing that has concretized poverty. I left Essence when I realized that 80 percent of black fourth graders were reading below grade level. I didn't believe it. I called Marion Wright Edelman, and she said, we're losing ground when it comes to literacy. We're working in a school in Brooklyn where they are actually graduating young people from high school reading at a second grade level. You have never anywhere in this country, you've never heard a commercial, nor have you seen a billboard. And like, you know, everybody on this phone, I've, ca I've traveled the back roads of America and the highways. I've never seen anything that said, come and learn to read, nor have I ever say, seen a commercial that, in, that invited people to come and learn to read. It is a huge barrier. It's a great shame. And I'm saying we can fix this. As long as we keep looking out and having conversations and not have a plan, we're not going to see ourselves move out of this quagmire. 
And that's what we're caught in. It's a quagmire, but it's one that we can fix. So I hope that coming out of this pandemic, that we will emerge a different people, that we will emerge a people who really do care about one another, who realize that we have, most of us have more than enough, that we will really push from the pews toward the pulpit, demanding that our, our churches and our temples and our mosques really not allow poverty and children around the corner while we're raising, you know, thousands of dollars for the minister's anniversary and the kids around the corner don't even know what a computer looks like. And they're in schools. So this is on us. What is the agenda? We need leadership and we need to know what we're all supposed to be thinking about. You know, what I say is preachers can preach about whatever they want to, you know, on Saturdays and Sundays and Wednesday nights. But what is the agenda? Here's the agenda. This is what we're asking the congregants to stand for. And then let me give you the word. We get the word, but we don't have the agenda. But you know, Michael, here's what I think. And, and, we, and we, of course, did the State of Black America in Indianapolis along with uh, the steward speakers. It was uh, Susan, Michael, uh, Reverend Sharpton, um, and I moderated the whole deal. And as somebody who's covered, look, every time they have one of these events, the CBC, of course, had their emergency uh, meeting when it, when it came to um, just, just a few weeks ago. But but here's here's what I think is the fundamental issue, and Susan I believe is is half correct. She says, "Where's the agenda?" But after the agenda, where's the accountability? See, I remember when 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 the book um, um, the Tavis book came out, the Covenant, mm-hmm. and I and I had Tavis on my show, and I said, Tavis. You got to come back in six months for the six-month follow-up. And then after that, the next six months. Because, see, for me, I'm always about, okay, what did we do? Uh, the first two or three years, and Reverend Sharpton had his Measuring the Movement uh, in New York tied to his conference. We aired it on TV One. When he called me, he said, I know the only way you can participate if there's a measuring, I'm like, absolutely. I'm not trying to have another conversation. I said, hell, I'm tired of them panels. It was about when you come, no, no, what did you do? And it was interesting, Michael, because, um, and I'm going to go ahead and say it. I ain't got a problem saying it because it was a public show. Uh, we told everybody up front, if you make a commitment, we're going to follow up. What did you do? Who's the contact? All this sort of stuff. So I remember we did a follow-up, uh, and whoever was a National Urban League contact, we email, we call, we did everything. Brother did not get back with us, and so we put, we said it on Sunday. So Mark Morial called me, and he was like, Roland, what happened? I said, Mark, we say it. Here are the ground rules. He didn't respond. We didn't hear back. Accountability. And so they immediately got back to me. And my whole deal is, you got to have accountability. We got to have folk who say, okay, what are we going to do on Monday, then Tuesday, then Wednesday, then Thursday, then Friday, then Saturday, then Sunday? Then the following Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, what are the markers keeping people abreast? Accountability. We're great at discussions. We're great at actually, I think, writing down agendas, but not that accountability part on what are we achieving? And, okay, check, 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 check. That, to me, is really where, where people fall off. What do you do after the list and after the meeting? 
No, no, absolutely right. I mean, uh, Susan Taylor is one of the greatest leaders this nation has produced. She's speaking out of her own extraordinary experience. Absolutely. Understanding that, first of all, to focus on what those particular points are is critical. I remember I was on a um, <clears throat> panel with Taylor Branch once at the University of North Carolina. And, you know, he had written these three uh, books, massive tomes, uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning tomes about Dr. King and the movement. And he said, you know, a lot of people talk about what went on. He said, but for the most part, Martin Luther King Jr. did what we're doing in this room now, sitting down, talking, thinking, arguing, going back and forth to get it right, which is why I think, for the instance, your show as a daily intervention of both high intellectual pedigree but also deeply and profoundly political grappling with the issues is necessary. I never want to downplay that. So, yes, the agenda is extremely important. The accountability, the follow-up, because I couldn't be a professor. I got to have accountability. What, what, what classes did you teach? Right, how right. How many folks did you, how many, how many students did you reach? What kind of, and then they judged me too. He was there, he wasn't there. He was able to break down some important stuff for us and make it available. So there's a constant accountability. I hold students accountable by giving them grades, the students hold me accountable by reflecting on what I've done well and what I have done so well so that there's an outcome. So I think that's important. But let me say this. As much as I believe in what both of you have said, and both of those are critical aspects, I, I, I put it in thirds. Agenda, accountability, and we got to talk about the access. The reality is this. We put money into this economy. We paid taxes. We deserve that the government, I don't want to just make this a black thing, because black folk ain't created the problem, ain't got enough resources to solve it. We do not possess the requisite financial wherewithal to address the staggering poverty that has been a result of slavery, Jim Crow, and anti-black sentiment that has directed the economic resources of America away from us, even as we pay taxes to support this nation. So I don't want to let America off the hook right. for what it's got to do to address our situation. So the accountability, in part, is to ask our leaders to make certain that they are constantly arguing on behalf of those of us who are out here, and as Susan Taylor said, articulating a two or three or four-point agenda. And let me say this. Every black person ain't a guy three black we're going to get out with Ben Carson for the most part. Hold on, hold on. Well, actually, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. You're, you're, you're actually, your signal, uh, you, you, so it went out. You said every black person, now pick it up from there. Every black person ain't got to agree with every black person for black people to have an agenda, right? We got to get with the black people we agree with. Ben Carson ain't on our, Ben Carson and I ain't on the same side, right? Candace Owens and I, we ain't on the same side. They black. They doing what they do. So we got to find enough black people who agree with what we're doing. We don't have to have massive unity. What we have to have is functional solidarity. Martin Luther King Jr. had about 4% to 5% of black America in his corner working with him on a daily basis. The masses of black people never got on the street corners. They never got into the marches. They never physically participated in the civil rights movement. So that remnant, that small contingent of people were able to revolutionize American society. So I think that what we have to give up on is the illusion that we will have massive solidarity. And what we've got to do instead is to have ad hoc solidarity. 
those like Susan Taylor, Roland Martin, Andre Carson, Michael Eric Dyson, Maxine Waters, and those of us who agree, get our forces together, do what we feel is necessary, and make a demand on our leaders, on ourselves, but I am not letting a government off that takes uh, so much of my check, every check, of Susan Taylor's check, of your check, of Carson's check. We have to make sure that the, the poor, the least of these, have the wherewithal to survive. And black folks' pockets ain't deep enough. If every rich black person in America right. gave money, we would never be able to solve this problem. This is white supremacy intervening with economic lack of opportunity that has rendered our black communities barren and destitute in some areas, and we've got to address that. So all three of us, I think, are critical to making sure that we revolutionize our communities and then reconstitute them and then bring the kind of healing that we need to have. Congressman Carson, I have long argued that the... I, 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 it, it amazes me when I hear people um, Roland, you you a lackey because you defending the CBC. I said, mm. no. I said, unlike you, I am aware of the political process and how the changing of one sentence can alter an entire bill. I think a lot of people, when I hear people say, oh, the CBC ain't shit. They ain't, they ain't doing nothing. Sure. And then I go, so what do you think they do? Mm. The, yeah, but but this ain't changed, and this ain't changed, and then you go, well, you know, they're now in control in the House, but they don't control the Senate, and 400 bills got passed in the House, and Mitch McConnell won't take any of the bills up. And you go through this whole deal. Then I begin to explain to people examples of, well, I, I know when Congresswoman Alma Adams put this in a bill, don't have her name on it, mm -hmm. but she inserted this in a bill that changed and it results in this here. And so for a lot of people just don't understand the process. But I also argue that part of the problem from a political standpoint is you're fighting battles, but you need to have troops who also show up having your back when you're fighting the battles. When, um, when uh, Loretta Lynch, when black women were going to Capitol Hill saying confirm here, I was going, where in the hell are the men's groups? Mm. I was like... Fraternities, where y'all at? So Jamal Bryant, Jeff Johnson, and myself, we said, fine, we just gonna call black men. So we about 200 brothers showed up. You and Congresswoman Beatty walked mm -hmm. us in. First of all, cops came all out of nowhere, because you know, with 200 black men walking anywhere uh, as a group, they just, they, Susan, they all freaked out. They were like, what the hell? This ain't the Million Man March, what happened? But the thing that was amazing, Congressman, a lot of these brothers, for the first time, had never, they had never been to Capitol Hill before. Sure. But you also saw the reaction of, frankly, white political leaders who were like, what the hell is going on with 200 black men? The reason I'm saying that is they needed to see black men also standing up for Loretta Lynch and not just black women. You have to have troops who are in the fight with you and not just have a bunch of generals who then say, where y'all at? Y'all didn't show up. So you need them at the school board meeting, the city council meeting, the county commissioners meeting, putting pressure. So y'all, you sitting there saying, I, I told y'all they were interested. Now it's 300 people showing up. But it can't be you sitting there alone and the people not showing up. That's right. That's right. That's so important. You know, the Congressional Black Caucus is composed of 50-plus members. That's a huge voting block. Many of us are chairs of, of committees and subcommittees. Many of us come from different backgrounds and experiences. 
We're fighting every day. You have the leadership of Jim Clyburn, a Maxine Waters, uh, uh, a Barbara Lee, a Karen Bass, Emmanuel Cleaver, so many, Benny Thompson, Hakeem Jeffries. There are so many black members of Congress who work each and every day. I tell people all the time, Roland, if you're, if you're putting all of your hopes, dreams, and aspirations on any politician, let alone a human being, you're setting yourself up for failure and disappointment. The Congressional Black Caucus is a legislative body. We provide legislative remedies. This can't be done by politicians alone. You're going to need the Dr. Dysons. You're going to need the Madam Taylors. You're definitely going to need the Roland Martins to give us a perspective with black brilliance and black ingenuity and black scholarship to highlight where other platforms would probably decline to do so. But the Congressional Black Caucus, when Donald Trump first got into office, I was uh, on the executive team of the Congressional Black Caucus, and we met with President Trump because his, 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 his model at that time was, what do you have to lose, black people? So we met with him, and we laid out an agenda. He has yet to follow through with that agenda. He has symbolic meetings with black leaders, but if you want to get the work done, you need representation in public office. Most of the things that we do, you know, Roland, are impacted or are a result of a political decision. You drive on the road, the road is paved. That's a result of some city council making a decision about that road. You hit a pothole, you call your city councilor. You want a church built, a school built, a mosque built, a temple built. We need representation on zoning boards. You want to talk about uh, a school reform. You need to talk to your state legislator, assemblyman, or delegate. You want to impact the way Social Security is distributed and making cost of living adjustments. You have to have an impact on your member of Congress. Look, it disappoints me uh, sometimes the narratives that are out there in our community. And I know everyone on this panel has to dispute some of those narratives. And I think some of those narratives are quite healthy. But if we're depending on some mythological Illuminati and saying we're just going to give it up and we're not going to participate in America's activist life and political life, you need both. I was arrested, Roland, at the age of 17 outside of a mosque. And at that time, I thought you needed outside agitation. Protest the system. Protest the system. You need that. But as I grew older, I realized you needed outside agitation and inside instigation to have the right friction to produce legislation that impacts the lives of everyday people. And so for those who want to be dismissive of the Congressional Black Caucus, if we were to list the legislation that was produced as a result of advocacy and input from that great caucus, people would be surprised. We don't tell our story enough. We're not a monolithic group. We come from different regions. We have different life experiences. But those experiences combine to make a voting block that is so influential. Everyone who runs for president comes to the Congressional Black Caucus. Every sitting president comes to the Congressional Black Caucus. Every sitting speaker of the House comes to the Congressional Black Caucus. Governors and senators all come to the Congressional Black Caucus, not because we're so special, but because we're a group of legislators. That doesn't mean we don't listen to the Dr. Dysons and accept those critiques and get his insight and wisdom. 
That doesn't mean we don't listen to the Madam Taylors and get her insight and wisdom. That doesn't mean we don't let the Roland Martins inform us, educate us, and critique us and grow as a result of those critiques. It takes all of us to come together for the good of our community and our people. Susan, when you talk about the the agenda, but also I think what, what, what comes out and when you talk about hopefully what people realize in the midst of this is there is nothing like people power. There's nothing like understanding regular, ordinary people actually made the black freedom movement what it is. Regular, ordinary people. Sure, we talk a lot about Dr. King, we talk about Ralph Abernathy, we talk about Fan Lou Hamer, who was a regular sharecropping Mississippi. And I think, yeah. I think part of the thing that we have to do, and we try to do it as much as we can on this show, is to get people to understand Stop walking around thinking that you are powerless. You actually have power. It's just not being used and tapped into. How would you walk... So let's say you were having a conversation with one person, and they said, Miss Taylor, I, I can't do anything. I don't have any power. No one will ever listen to me. What would you say to that of a sister or brother and you were talking to them? I would say, you know what, I we're going to push the congregations to have Saturday schools. The system is not teaching our children how to think. Come on. They don't know how government really works. And there's no push from the community to ensure that that happens. You know, you're talking about, if we go back to the civil rights movement, those folks really understood what they were doing. They had leadership that broke it down. They met. The, the, the division between the haves and the have-nots have really deepened. I love that I, I feel like I'm a bridge between the high and the humble, that I have access to people like, you know, the three of you gentlemen. But I grew up in the neighborhood, and I'm not afraid of us. Mm-hmm. So what we've done is we've distanced ourselves because we have a few accoutrements mm. from the people. What I want to see, and I think I said it, maybe I didn't say it clearly enough, because I, it's, it's a plan that, you know, some of us agree on and that we're going to move forward, and it's a report card. I think you do have to hold, you have to hold people accountable. This is what we are asking for, and this is how you measure the people who are holding political office against this three, four, five-point agenda report card. What we do is we have to, we know that black folk love entertainment, everybody does. But look at what our young, what, look at what our young people are looking at. I can't even turn on the television. It's all violence. If we had something going on in our sanctuaries, they're empty 95% of the time, bring the folks together and let's start educating us in a way with dynamic speakers like the three of you. You are three brilliant men. If we knew we were going to go and hear Roland Martin and not have to pay anything, because well, we've got to bring you there. Let me not even talk about that. But the fact that we don't have a place where the, where the community can gather and learn about who we are, what our history is, and what that agenda is and how we move it forward. That's what I think is critical and I think is missing and that I'd like to see. So that person yep. who said to me, I'm powerless, if you knew anything about history, you would know that's not true. And nobody's going to teach you that in PS09. You've mm. got to come to the community, and the community has to show you the history 
when we didn't even have the rights or the resources that we have today, we did much more than we are doing today. So we're, it's time for re reorganizing ourselves, rearticulating who we are, coming into the power that the Holy Spirit has like imbued in each and every one of us and giving you know, our people the confidence, not giving it to them, but what? Inspiring it in them so that they know that they can use what they have to really create a better future for themselves and for our children. See, Michael, when I listen to Susan talk about that, I mean, I, I'm just thinking about, I mean, that's just, those are freedom schools. Uh, and in fact, and I was speaking um, to a group and somebody said, oh, that's a great idea. How do we do it? I said, y'all, um, I said, that's still what Marion Wright Edelman's group does. They actually still teach. They have a, if you go to their website, they have the Freedom School Kit that any church can download to turn, just what Susan just said, to turn their churches into freedom schools to teach those, those very things. And people, when I travel, people ask me, well, you know, uh, well, you know, how, how do you talk about organizing, but you're a journalist? I'm like, no, 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 you forgot. I said, my mom and daddy never went to college, okay? High school graduate, Jack Hayes High School in Houston. But they were co-founders of our Clinton Park Civic Club, and so having five kids ain't like we had a choice. We couldn't vote. Damn it, they made us go pass out flyers and put up signs and stuff. Watching it, ordinary people who said, we care about our community, so we want to get uh, overgrown lot cut, or we want to get a crack house torn down, or we want we want new streets and new lights and new sewer systems. That thing grew and grew and grew because regular people just said, hey, you know what? We got problems here. And what ended up happening was uh, the haters were like, man, y'all not going to do anything. And they said, don't worry about them. We just stay focused on what we're doing. And I think that's where we have to be. So I saw basic community organizing from regular people who my parents did. And so, but you have to have the willingness to do it. And I think, Michael, that's really, when you talk about where people are mentally, where we have to get people out of this brain lock, brain freeze, where they say, I simply can't do it. I don't have a degree. I don't have enough money. I don't know if enough important people. Just go, why can't Oprah do it or Robert Smith do it? But nothing that black people have ever gotten came because folk at the top made it happen. It was regular, ordinary people who did extraordinary things. No, it's a, it's a useful uh, history lesson. I mean, look at Stewart Speakers Tonight, which are sponsoring what we're doing here tonight. They, they took the opportunity during this pandemic to team with you to broadcast this particular uh, panel for an hour uh, to the world that will tune in. So we can use what's available. You talk about freedom schools. I was I was thinking to myself, laughing when Miss Taylor said, you know, uh, put up a sign to say, "Come here and read." Well, they couldn't read it if they saw it, <laughs> you know. And that's her point. The point is, how? No, can that's we... not my point. <laughs> Excuse me. Go ahead. Anybody can. Anybody can. 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 If I'm in the car with you and I can't read, read question mark. Learn to read. People can figure that out. My sister has dyslexia. She could read that. No, she can't sit down and read, you know, the document and understand how to file for something. But most people can figure out some stuff. So that's not what I'm saying. And not even that, Michael. It's really about even television commercials. You don't see a, you've never seen a commercial that said, come learn to read. That is a huge barrier. The barrier is education. 
The three of you are highly educated men. And with that, you've been able to move yourself forward further than your parents were. Our children, this is intergenerational uneducation, you know, miseducation. Intergenerational, the same schools that are really like, what are they? They're, they're dead-end schools. Jonathan Kozel, what did he call them? The shame of the nation. That's what they are. And we're doing nothing about it. Don't tell me we can't fix that. With our own tax dollars, demanding that they, what? What, what creates, what has concretized poverty is the lack of education. And as long as property taxes fuel education budgets, there'll never be equity in education because people in no home ownership or low home ownership communities will never have the money to, in, to give students in, in poverty areas what suburban students have. It's, it, it breaks down to something that it's not simple, but it's true, so. Okay, well, thank you for correcting me, Susan. <laughs> I was just trying to shoot I'm going to pay for this later on. <laughs> oh, hey, sorry to get to a bigger point, but thank you so much for that. Uh, and my bigger point was about the structural issues that prohibit the flourishing of education in our communities, and the depth of the illiteracy is astonishing. So what I was trying to joke about a little bit by saying they couldn't read it if they saw it, the point is that the vast reaches of illiteracy in our communities is a result of deliberate de-education, defunding of education, public schooling especially. You go out to the suburbs, you got 60 and 70, $80 million schools where they have, you know, aquaria with planaria, and you come into the inner city and you can't even get running water or the toilets are working, and you still got secondhand books. The savage inequalities that Jonathan Kozel talked about, but many more theoreticians from our own community have tried to talk about Christopher Emden in terms of hip-hop education and other people who have been trying to speak about the degree to which we link literacy. It's not that we are illiterate. We're literate in so many other languages that can then be used to transfer over uh, to what we need to do. So to take your point and Roland's point about the Freedom School, look at what we have available on the Internet. If we would take less time trying to cancel each other out, mm, trying to mm. call each other to, to and, and use words that are nasty and mm -hmm. vicious, and then organize the enormous right. reach we have on friggin' Twitter, on Instagram, right. and on Facebook, you talking about a freedom school that could be organized, the distribution of uh, uh, agendas, and also of syllabi that could help people make a difference in their lives. So we could do it virtually in a way that we can't necessarily physically do in the old school. If Martin Luther King Jr. had Instagram and Twitter and, and Facebook, my God, the ability to mobilize and transform those masses in the ways you are talking about, education and access. But education is the fundamental principle of access. That and ownership of homes and property that allows people to have the American dream. If we had those two pillars, education and ownership of property, then black people would be exponentially advanced in our quest for freedom. Well, we do have to deal with this, uh, Congressman Carson, that I, want, that I want Susan definitely jump in this, is that we also have to recognize that, and Michael, you made an early, excellent point early in terms of if every black person gave what it wouldn't do. But we also, though, have to fund things that are within our control. So when, so perfect example, National Cares Mentoring Gala Congressman had the uh, had National Cares Mentoring move, had their gala in February, and about we got three hundred fifty thousand dollars in commitments, 
But guess what? What we can have with them killing themselves to try to get the commitments. If you make a commitment, you got to honor it. That's right. I, I have people who literally say, well, why should I have to give to your show? I said, first of all, you're not, you don't have to give to my show. I said, we have a fan club. I said, but guess what? You can't do this five days a week. I said, and not pay for the office space and pay for the staff and pay for the robotic cameras. And we can't travel to go cover an event somewhere and you don't pay for the plane ticket or the train ticket. And I'm like, so guess what? Fox makes $1.25 billion in profit. CNN makes $800 million in profit. I'm like, that ain't us. But in the last five weeks, I, we probably had more black experts on in five weeks than all those networks have had combined. And so we also have to say to our people, we also got to fund it and fund our institutions. John Rogers was just on talking about black businesses. He said, if we don't fund our civil rights groups, hell, who's going to be there to fight for uh, funding for black business when it comes to the $2 trillion plan that was passed? And so all of this is about what, to Susan's point earlier, Congressman, what can we do? Not, okay, y'all figured it out, but what we can do in the midst of this to be able to rebuild and restore. And so when we come on the other side of coronavirus, then we coming out swinging. Absolutely. I, I think you're right. You know, um, I'm one of those who needs to, to commit to my $50 a year to your platform. I have a YouTube subscription that I watch the Roland Martin show on. I certainly can commit my and do my part. You know, uh, a lot of times we like to talk to talk, but we don't walk the walk. We can pay, and I don't knock what someone does to get by, but we can pay to turn up, and we'll spend 50 100 $150 to turn up, but we refuse to use that same money to donate to the UNCF. Speaking of UNCF, a part of the negotiation with the Congressional Black Caucus and the CARES Act too is to get funding for historically black colleges and universities, which are, who are suffering right now. So I think, I think we make a big mistake by t putting too much on entertainers, actors, and sometimes, dare I say, politicians, when we have the power to mobilize and support those platforms that work. I was so proud when I saw Brother Jay-Z and Meek Mill commit to giving over 130 masks to prison, uh, uh, our brothers and sisters who are incarcerated. I was pleased to see Brother Diddy raise millions of dollars on his IG platform. I think now we're in a different space where we can use social media and we can use the digital age to really fund efforts, black efforts, because the environment is changing and has changed so rapidly. And so ways in which we can be creative, Roland, uh, in terms of funding these movements I think it's a low-cost effort. If we could give to presidential candidates $1 here, $5 here, $7 here, certainly we can give that same kind of commitment to black folks who are doing work in the entertainment space, in the NGO space, in the educational space like Dr. Dyson, in the wellness space like Madam Taylor for just a few bucks a month or even a year if you have enough numbers to fund those efforts, I think we'll see a change quite rapidly. Susan, this is about us. And when you you mentioned it, and I don't think people really understand, you saw what happened after Katrina. You could have kept doing Essence. You could have kept, you could have said, oh, man, me and Kefra, we about to travel. I put the work in. But again, you said, no, no, we've got to create this mentoring movement for our children and it's gone from that single idea 
to something far bigger than a lot of people would ever imagine after a handful of years, but you made the commitment to do it, and then you decided to go to work. Well, you know, how about people saying, have you lost your mind? This is not going to happen. Right. But I know that when you're doing God's work and you keep putting one foot in front of the other and it's the right thing for the people, things give way and what you need comes into your hands. What, what, I, what I do want to say about, you know, black people not supporting our institutions, we don't. When you think about the uh, college presidents who go out to raise money, black college presidents, and then the foundations want to know, well, what about the alums? You know, how are they supporting? Yep. It's, it's embarrassing. Average is 5%. We really talk about the little that black people who graduated from our great institutions give back. 5%. But you know what? I, it, it, yep. This is why we have to come together for our healing. Yes. If we understand what happened to us over these past 400 years, what happened to us in enslavement, we do not trust one another. We don't like putting money in, in black people's hands. Come on. We just don't do it. You know, but we have to come to an understanding of it. So if we could come together and have those kinds of, what, lectures and, and panels that really help us to see ourselves, what did it do to black men to have an overseer come into his cabin and take his daughter, his wife, his children, rape them, throw them back, and then have half-white children that he then raised and treated as, as his own. I mean, the, the, what we have withstood is so deep. The brutality is just so vicious. We have to understand it. We have to heal it. Then we can really look in the mirror and see our behaviors and begin to love ourselves again and to love one another again. But until we come to an understanding of our history and what happened to us, we're not going to get there. I think that's a big part of it. Michael, final comment, about 60 seconds. Well, uh, what Susan Taylor has just indicated is so extremely important. The pandemic is also inside of us. The, the refusal really? to acknowledge our humanity, the refusal to acknowledge that white water ain't wetter than black water, the refusal to embrace each other and to see the good the powerful, the enduring, the intelligent, the beautiful in our each other. And when we do that, when we deal with the fundamental reality that we are worthy of every sacrifice that should be made on our behalf, then we will begin to demand the kind of resources, not only from ourselves, which is extremely important, but also from the society that we have done so much to build up. It doesn't have to be an either or. It's gotta be both us from within and demanding that the structures that we have supported through our work, through our brilliance, and through our monies also be recycled back to us. Congressman Carson, final, final word. No, I agree. I think, uh, um, I think on that note, I want to encourage folks to uh, complete, complete the census. Uh, uh, those dollars can go to our communities, communities of color. We need to get our fair share, and a part of getting that fair share doing apportionment and redistricting and how they determine how congressional maps are drawn and what your representation looks like, please fill out the census. What an honor, Roland. I want to commend the Stewart Speaker Series, Brother Matt, you, Dr. Dyson, and Madam Taylor for um, your powerful words. I'm truly inspired. Oh. Well, echoing that, actually, Matt Stewart, thank you so much. And Roland, you're just brilliant. The way that you just manage these kinds of forums really amazing to me. I, mine is very simple. You know, reward the people who love us and support us and punish those who don't. Hmm. Be 
conscious consumers don't spend your money among people who show they have no interest in you, our children, our community. Wake up. Mm. Certainly want to thank uh, Matthew Stewart and Stewart Speakers of reaching out to us uh, to hold this conversation. Um, we created this digital platform so we didn't have to ask other people permission to have these conversations. And that's why we do this every single day. That's one of the reasons why we've uh, had more than 150 million views of our videos since we launched September 4th. 2018. This is about being unapologetically black, uh, and that's why, and unfiltered. And so we certainly want to thank all of you who watched us on Facebook, YouTube, Periscope, as well as Instagram. If you want to support what we do, we're here every single day. Uh, we don't do gossip. We don't spend our time focused on entertainment. This is about news and information that's empowering our people, uh, that's engaging with our people. Uh, and look, we can be entertaining, but we also need us to understand information is indeed power. So please support us on Cash App, dollar sign RM Unfiltered, paypal.me forward slash rmartinunfiltered. Uh, the reality is this here, we have been greatly impacted by coronavirus. Uh, I've made it clear, I don't want to have to lay off staff or furlough people, uh, but we want to be here every single day. So we certainly need your support to join our Bring the Funk fan club. About 5,000 people have already joined. Our goal is to get 20,000 by the end of the year at 50 bucks a year. $4.19 a month, 13 cents a day. That's what it costs for us to do it. We can make it happen. So I appreciate it. Thanks a bunch, folks. We shall see you tomorrow. Roland Martin Unfiltered, Michael Larry Dyson, Congressman Andre Carson, Susan Taylor. I appreciate it. Thank you so very much, Stuart Speakers. We appreciate it. We got to go. Holla! Every single night. We've got some of the top black experts. You're not going to see them on cable news or broadcast news because you swear black people aren't experts when it comes to this health crisis. That's why we have this show and why we do what we do every day on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Joining us right now is retired General Russell Honore, the nation's first black surgeon general, Dr. Jocelyn Elders. John Hope Bryant, he's the founder of Operation Hope. Senator Kamala Harris of California, Dr. Sadrina Calder, retired General Lloyd Austin, Congresswoman Karen Bass, Commissioner Omari Hardick, Bureau President in Brooklyn, Eric Adams, Dr. Joseph Graves, America's Wealth Coach, Deborah Owens, Dr. Corey Abair, Patel Salt. Uh, Howard University student, Pastor Jamal Bryant, a doctor, uh, Christy McDowell, Benja Ajilore, senior economist at the Center for American Progress, Gilda Daniels, again, author of the book, The Crisis of Voter Suppression in America. Four stars, General Kit Ward, Dr. Oliver Brooks, is president of the National Medical Association, president of the American Medical Association, Dr. Patrice Harris, Joby Benjamin, Dr. Alexia Gaffney, infectious disease specialist, Dr. George's Benjamin, uh, executive director of the American Public Health Association, Malcolm Nance, family medicine physician Dr. Jen Caudle, Dr. Tashaka Cunningham, a molecular biologist, Kat Stafford. She's a national race and ethnicity reporter for the Associated Press. Dr. Wayne A.I. Frederick, uh, who is the president of Howard 
University, Congresswoman Yvette Clark uh, from the state of New York. William Spring, AFL-CIO economist. Uh, Andrea James, executive director of the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls. All right, let's go to Capitol Hill. Congressman Gregory Meeks, Congresswoman Anybody's Johnson of Texas, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, mental health clinician Jamie Singletary, Prince George's County State's Attorney Aisha Brayboy, as well as Dylan uh, Harry, ACLU Justice Division strategist. Uh, Dr. Cindy Duke, uh, she is a virologist, Principal Steve Perry of Capitol Prep, health and wellness specialist Dr. Yolandra Hancock, Desmond Mead, President of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, Cliff Albright, who is the co-founder of Black Voters Matter, Michael Harriet with the group, the Mina McWhorter, founder of Love by the Hand, Dr. Julian Malvo, economist, president, emerita Bennett College, corner Michael Fowler, is the mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, mental health therapist, Suzette Clark, Justin Gibney, attorney and political strategist, and Bishop Vincent Matthews, Jr., Dr. Suzette McKinney, CEO and executive director of the Illinois Medical District, Dr. Leon Madugo, president-elect of the National Medical Association, Jana Bailey, Mayor of Moss Point, uh, Mississippi, uh, Mario King. We're going to keep driving this thing to make sure our people are fully aware, safe, protected from coronavirus. You're getting the top medical experts, the top business experts, top political experts, top religious experts, because that's why we do what we do unapologetically and unfiltered. Ain't nobody else in the black media space doing what we do. Watch Roland Martin Unfiltered daily at 6 p.m. Eastern on YouTube, Facebook, or Periscope, or go to RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. Support the Roland Martin Unfiltered Daily Digital Show by going to RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. Our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans, contributing 50 bucks each for the whole year. You can make this possible. RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.